Well, if you would, with those same Bibles, if you turn in the, in, in the psalm, would you turn with me to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 7. And as you're, as you're turning there, um, anybody, have it, has anybody ever felt like they're out of control? Like their life is out of control? I'm guessing the laughter means, no, that's never happened. <laughs> and that you've got... You've, taught, you've crossed your T's and dotted your I's, but when you've been out of control, or even if you're right now, how do you, how do you like that? I mean, let, let's talk about the positive side of that for a sec. On the one hand, that can be great. You're up on top of a water slide, and as soon as you start going down, you don't have control. Don't fool yourselves. Nobody has control going down a water slide. You are at the mercy of gravity and the engineering of that tube and the amount of water that's there. So in some ways, being out of control can feel great. <laughs> but given your laughter and the way you guys looked at me when I said, How's, how do you like being out of control, that's not probably what you first thought of, the joy of a water slide. So... You're more likely thinking about when, when you didn't willingly climb the steps to go down a chute of water. Anybody feeling that helplessness with the, the ways things are going in your life right now? The way things are, seem to be going in the world we live in right now? All those things affect us, whether it's pandemic or if it's half the country seeming to go into mob rule or if or just day-to-day things of getting your kids ready to get here. <laughs> Talking to Laurel, she said, we, were, we worked to get here this morning. We almost failed. <laughs> That's life. That's life. And when, the pre- when that pressure gets put on us, we get out of control too because it can just be just one little thing. Just put that right on the top and we're the person that just explodes on somebody and causes their lives to be out of control. And we wound. And we feel a sense of helplessness as we try to pick up the pieces. We don't... We do not like not being in control. We like things to be done our way, in our time, for us. And kids, you know this. I've seen it with, well, I won't put them on the spot, but you've seen it when some kid is not playing with a toy the way you think it should be played with, right? Right? No, you're doing it wrong. You've got to do it this way. Why do you got to do it this way? Because that's the way I would do it. Kids and adults, we like being in control. And when our sense of control is challenged, how do we respond? How do we respond to God? You know, people even want to control God. 
We want him to do things when we want, the way we want, and as much or as little as we want. We Christians even do this. We do believe, and rightly, that he's all-powerful. He is sovereign. And then we try to get him to do what what we want, because he is those things. We pray that God would do something at a certain time. Lord, please end COVID-19 at such and such a date. And then such and such a date comes and goes. When that happens, when, not if, should we get mad at God? What should our response be when we are forced to wait? When we are forced, when we don't get the answer we wanted from, at all from our prayer? How should we respond when God doesn't meet our expectations of him? So as we open God's word this morning, let's remember where we've come from. Jesus has laid down a major, major line in the sand for the people of his day. He says, believe me that I am the bread of life, or don't believe me and eat the food that perishes. And On the outset, this might seem like a simple decision, but unless God intervenes, every single person who hears his words there thinks, because we are disposed and opposed to God, thinks, that's some of the most foolish stuff in the world, Jesus. You're just a man. And scripture says, as we studied last week, many people no longer followed him. And those who did there for the moment, off to the, left off to the side for the moment to wrestle through the implications of that. And here we are at another change of scene. As Linda said, within la- likely the last six months of Jesus' ministry on earth. So, let's get to it. Chapter 7, would you stand with me as we read God's word this morning? Beginning in verse 1. John chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he's leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. You can have a seat. You can hear a lot of expectations about Jesus in that passage, can't you? 
How should we respond when God doesn't meet our expectations? We have two options. It's the same two options as the line in the sand. We can disbelieve or believe. We can try to make God do what we want or we can submit to him and follow what he wants. And for those who do believe Jesus, followers of Jesus, followers of Jesus, submit to Jesus. This passage, interestingly enough, does not have any followers of Jesus. But there are people wanting God to do things their way instead of submitting him, submitting to him in his ways. And for us followers, we should listen to how they interact and perceive Jesus and do the opposite. So let's get to it. Number one, we submit to Jesus' agenda for glory. After this, verse one, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast, Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So here's a little, this is a little background information section of this passage. Jesus has really, <laughs> really angered the Jewish authorities, and that's what's meant here by the term Jews. Not just the nation as a whole, but, the, but the, specifically the leaders. And he's angered them because he healed somebody on the Sabbath. He made somebody's life great on the Sabbath. And he exposed them, those authorities, for the fools that they are. <laughs> so they are trying to get rid of him. So Jesus is exercising some wisdom in not going to Judea. It's not his hour to die. But then we're introduced to the point of tension. Now the Feast of Booths was at hand. In the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy, there's, this was one of three Jewish holidays where all Jewish men were required to go to the place God had placed his name, that is Jerusalem, to worship. And the Feast of Booths, which is also called the Feast of Tabernacles, of all the, of the many feasts, that one was a great one to be at. It was a reminder that God had protected Israel in the wilderness when he rescued them from Egypt and that they had lived in tents before coming to the Promised Land. So what they would do is every family would build a tent or set up a tent somewhere called a Sukkot and they would put it on their rooftop or they'd put it out in their yard and they would live there for seven days. A reminder that they were once travelers, sojourners through the wilderness. And not only that, this was a great celebration because this is like what we do at the end of harvest. This was the end of their harvest seasons. This was in late September, October, right around there. And... They celebrate the ingathering of the grain and the grapes and the olives. And so this celebration was huge with feasting and remembering. So this, was even, this, this holiday was even more well attended than Passover. And it was more popular. So, all that, if Jesus is a law-abiding Jew, he should go. But whose agenda should he be following? Because we're introduced to his brothers who have quite an agenda for him. They see this holiday as a great 
PR time for Jesus. Time to get some, great time to get some publicity, some fame, some vindicating recognition now that he's basically failed in, Jude- in Galilee because a whole bunch of the people of the crowd left. Verse 3, his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show show yourself to the world. What is that? That's an agenda. The brothers have an agenda. And you know what? On the face of it, it doesn't seem too bad. It doesn't seem too bad. I mean, Galilee was a long ways away from any place of influence in the ancient world. It was a place where people went to hide, not for people to shine. Why would the Messiah of the world stay there, out in the sticks, out in the boonies? Galilee was secret. Judea, however, was open. Jesus could make a massive impact going there. And it could be even more so because the Feast of Booths was so well attended. And many influential people would be there. And Jesus' ministry could really take off. Especially after this kind of clumsy start in Galilee where most of the people walked away. More people need to see your works, Jesus, and then they'll believe. (laughs) What's the problem with this? What's the problem with what the brothers say? What they say and they themselves are not submitted to God's agenda for his glory. They want him to be glorified. But don't want to do it themselves in the way that he wants to be glorified. They're not following God's agenda. Verse, how do we know that? Verse 5, not even his brothers believed in him. God's agenda is Jesus. And they don't even believe him. They think that they know best how God can be glorified. (laughs) There's an irony here. You know who's hiding in this passage? It's not Jesus. It's the brothers. Because they do not believe and therefore not submitted to God's agenda for glory. Jesus isn't hiding He's following the will of his Father. And that's what he's after. That's what God is after. Glory. His desire in making all things is so that his name might be proclaimed. His name might be magnified. He might be worshipped and known as the most supreme, superior, better, mighty, most worthy, most holy, most awesome creator and king that he is. And we Christians should say, Amen. Yes, do more of that, Lord. Be glorified here. Be glorified more. But we run into a problem when we follow that with, Yeah, God, be glorified. Out there. Not in here. (laughs) You know what I mean? For God to be glorified out there means that he has to be glorified in you. And when God aims to get glory in you, (laughs) you know what happens. It gets messy. Because glory doesn't share space with sin. 
It's easy to submit to a God who is doing cool magic tricks to wow everybody. But it's not easy to submit to the God who is glorified by the salvation of spiritually dead sinners being brought to new life in his name and who brings his holiness into the unholiness of our lives. For God to be glorified means that we have to set aside our agenda and let him set the agenda for our lives and to submit to how he knows best to be glorified. Anybody want to put put your wallet on the table for God to use? <laughs> I'll go with the jugular right there. You want to see how people live their lives, follow their wallets. It's not easy to submit. But that's where God is glorified. He's not glorified. He is glorified by doing signs and wonders, yes. But how much more miraculous is it that people are brought to life and their lives are changed? Submitting to God means what Jesus said in Luke 9.23, If anyone would come after me, that is, follow me, you know the verse, let him what? Deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Followers of Jesus submit to Jesus and his agenda for his glory. But not just his agenda, his timing for that agenda. Number two, we submit to Jesus' timing. The brothers make this great, this great PR pitch, and what does Jesus say? Verse 6, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come. But your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Jesus does not submit to his brother's sense of timing. They're supposed to and we're supposed to submit to his. And I suspect this might be where a lot of the rubber meets the road for us. Many of us. We have, even if you just looked at those pictures that Linda had up about the calendars, we have busy lives. <laughs> we have things to do, places to go, people to see. And I don't know about you, but when a wrench like a pandemic is thrown into the spokes of my life, especially now that we're into month five, we may be tempted to think, how about at the end of the month, Lord, you end this thing? Lord, is that so hard? <laughs> God's timing can be really tough for us. Waiting for the paycheck to come in. Waiting for a job to be completed. waiting for the IRS to finish processing our tax return, praying that we don't get audited. (laughs) 
Even on, for us on the other side of God's crucifixion and resurrection, we might think, why in the world does Jesus stay in Galilee? Let's bring this back to, back to the redemption purposes here. Why wouldn't he want to just get salvation for the world over and done with? What does Christ say? My time has not yet come. You know, contextually, this isn't just the big picture of Jesus coming to the time of the cross. This is just about going to the Feast of Booths. But what does he mean? He means God is very strategic with his time. He knows everything that will happen all the time. God's timing is not submitting to the brother's idea of how Jesus should get famous. God's timing is not going up with the thousands of pilgrims into Jerusalem where Jesus would likely be put in the spotlight and the crowd would try to do the same thing that they did at the, at the, in the wilderness where Jesus fed, them, fed the 5,000. Where they tried, they said they were trying to, they were going to force to make him king. God's timing is also that the is also not that the that the Messiah die before he finishes his earthly ministry and teaching. Jesus has some more things to say, and we're getting into a big section of that. Jesus eventually does go up to the feast, but what does it say? In private, not with big fanfare. And he goes up to teach the people of God, the people who the Christ really is. God's timing is always for his glory and it's for the good of his people. You ever been in a situation where it feels like it's the 11th hour of, at the 59th minute and something needs to come in in order for this to happen. And you've been praying about it since several 11th hours before. And you're thinking, wouldn't it be great, God, to just get that done like a couple days early? That way we could just relax? Anybody been in that situation? Well, right when it seems like the last minute, boom, God shows up. Now we have to ask ourselves, would we have trusted him as much if he had just put it out there? Maybe. Maybe not. But God wants us to submit to his timing for our good. See, that's the trouble with the brothers. They're not submitting to God's timing. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. The brothers can travel anywhere they want because they're not the Christ. And they're not promoting the Christ as the Christ. They're of the world, and the world does not believe Jesus. And the world always accepts its own who do not believe Jesus as well. But Jesus isn't of that world, is he? He came into that world, and when he did, he exposed it for what it is. 
a world in desperate need of a Savior. A world that apart from his grace would not believe him, but would at every opportunity seek to crucify him instead. But it's his timing. It's God's timing. Have you thought about this? For thousands of years of Israel's not-so-stellar history, not to mention the world's, God the Father did not send his Son. Why? To show that he is in control. To show that his timing is perfect. He was putting the pieces in place so that when he did come, it would be, as the scripture says, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Will we submit to his timing? For the follower of Jesus, that means we're no longer on our own schedule. We're on his. What does that look like in your life? Have you talked to God about your schedule? Have you talked to God about what, submit, what you submitting to him and submitting your schedule to him would look like? Some of you are doing the right things and using the time that God has given you amazingly well. But let's continue to submit to him so that he can further make us holy and use us for his glory. Because Jesus is also also still on schedule. He's still on schedule to return as he promised. And the reason he waits is so that the full number of his people would be gathered in of whom whom he wants to use you and me to help bring in. So that the world would be given call after call to look at Christ. And so that when a wrench like COVID-19 or pick your thing gets thrown into the spokes of your life, you and I would be reminded of the gospel. That at the right time Christ died for the ungodly and he has the right timing in your life for the things of your life, for his glory and your good. May we submit to his timing and trust him. But we have one more thing to cover. We must never ever be confused about who we're submitting to. We've got to be really careful about this. There are tons of voices saying, in effect, submit to me. That basically means, give me a hearing. Let me influence your life. Let me tell you what to do, and you do what I say. There are lots of those, lots of people, lots of even spiritual enemies who would desire to take you to places God does not want you to go. Who are we submitting to? Number three, we submit to Jesus' identity. Jesus himself. Verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? I was, that's how I think it, they say it. They're not saying, Well, where is he? We'd like to celebrate with him. No. <laughs> and then 
Verse 12, it says, And there was much muttering about him among the people. Some said, He's a good man. Others said, No, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Everyone there, as we go through it, everyone there is going to, and all of us must, come face to face with who we believe Jesus to be and who he really is and how those line up or don't line up. In fact, we see an example of God's timing here is that if Jesus had gone in public here and already been there, no one would have had the chance to wrestle with who he really is, with who they believe him to be. The question is, will they, will we submit to him as he is, not merely who we think he is? Even who we think he is must be submitted to him who is revealed in this book. We are fallen people. And it doesn't take a few sleepless nights to let you know that your brain doesn't work as well as it should. We must submit our everything to him. So who is he? Is he a crazy person? His brothers seem to think so. We saw that his brothers thought he was either a joke or a crazy person or someone who, someone who they could get glory from if he did have any clout. Do we think Jesus to be any of these things? Some people came to Jesus because, they thought, because of what they thought they could get from him. It's easy to take advantage of someone who, a crazy person, they think. We saw that in the crowd. <laughs> and the truth is, as Jesus says, they didn't really come to him at all. They came to a wishful dream. And reality disappointed them because Jesus would not submit to them and not submit to their idea of him. So is he a crazy person? No. Is he a threat? That's what the Jewish authorities believed. People in power don't like it when people who are not in power don't submit to them. Whether that's good or bad. Jesus would not submit to the Jewish authorities who had (laughs) misrepresented God to the people. So they thought he was a threat. Where is he? They're hunting for him at the feast. They're focused on him in, instead of celebrating the feast that God had given them. Or they're rather, they're focused on a caricature of him. Hunting for him at the feast to put an end to the one who could do what they could not. The one who exposed their abuse of power. You know how I, we can tell from this text that they abused the position that God had given them? Verse 13 Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. You're not allowed to talk about that. No civil discussion about Jesus is to be had. No public consideration of his claims. And what happens? People are left in the dark about him. And that was the very thing the leaders were charged not to allow to happen. To be in the dark about God. So, is Jesus a threat? (laughs) 
Well, to the sin and to sin and the sinner who opposes him, oh yes, he is. To the hating world and to the devil, yes, he is a threat. But that's good news. That is such good news. Because Jesus is opposed to the everything that keeps us from eternal life as a child of God the Father. He is opposed to that whether it's inside us or outside us. <laughs> if I could dare say it, he's the best kind of threat. The one that takes away all that is worthless and puts worth and life. But what is that? Is that is that just a good man? Because that's another opinion and thought about Jesus. The crowd, and as Jesus as Matthew I think records, the crowd is like sheep without a shepherd. Again, because the leaders were failing them. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And sheep without a shepherd get very mixed opinions about who Jesus is. And one part of this crowd seems to be on the doorstep of believing, but not opening the door. Maybe you've been here. He is a good man. Stop. You know, in some ways that's understandable. It's right. <laughs> Jesus is a good man. But it's not complete, is it? No one knows the life-changing salvation of Jesus Christ if they stop at, he's a good man. Or, he was a moral teacher. Or, he had some good things to say about how we should live and how we should love our neighbors. If they do not believe him as he is, submitting to his full identity, people who think Jesus is a good person will go to hell just like the people who think that he's a terrible person. And that leads us to the other part of the crowd. Because they think he's a terrible person. They're the, they're the part of the crowd that's a bit more black and white. No, he is leading the people astray. Except they say it in a whisper because they're afraid of people. Is Jesus a false teacher? Is Jesus a deceiver? Well, he just doesn't seem to say the kind of things that are typical of a false teacher. I mean, let's examine just one saying of Jesus this morning from this passage. He says, in verse 7, he says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. No false teacher would say this. I don't know why. Because every false religion, every false teacher does what it or he or she can to minimize Jesus' stance on sin. Either their own, or more particularly their own, or yours to get you to buy into it.
This book is a book about wonderful, wonderful grace. The grace of God being revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. But you know what grace, what makes grace, grace? Is that it's totally undeserved. And when you see the level of grace revealed in the scriptures of what Jesus has done to bring people to glory, we have to recognize that that means that there was a whole, there was a, a level of undeservedness about us that we can barely fathom. And if you minimize sin, you minimize God's grace to cover it. And you minimize the way God covered it through the shameful death of his son. And if we minimize sin, we also, we also minimize the glorious nature of all that is promised to us in Jesus. Eternal life, perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with one another. As the song goes, sin and sorrow be no more. Never crying again because of bad things. A wonderful life, always provided for, always cared for. Jesus is not a deceiver. But what is the identity of this Jesus to whom we must submit? John writes as his purpose for writing the book. We keep coming back to it in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. <laughs> On the one hand, there is not enough lifetimes of all of mankind put together to tell who Jesus is in his fullness. So glorious is he. But on the other hand, God was kind enough to tell us that which matters most for this moment. Jesus is the Christ. That is, the people of God's anointed one who rescues God's people and brings them into a right and eternal relationship with God. Israel had been waiting thousands of years for this Christ. But the Christ was not just a man. He is God incarnate, God's own Son, sent to perfectly complete the work of salvation. Following God's agenda and his timing, like Galatians 4, verse Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5 says, When the fullness of time had come, the right moment, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we, we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And as Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4 says, Long ago, at many times and many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also he created the world. And this Son of God, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs, even angels. This is the identity of Jesus. Will we submit to him? It's not a very popular term these days, and maybe that's been bothering you as we've talked about this submission. Well, my encouragement to you is do not judge a good thing according to its abuse. Authority and submission has been abused in this world, even by many of you, and you know it and you have asked God for help. But God never, ever abuses his authority. And so he is the one whom we, to whom we can perfectly and gladly submit. Will we submit to him? Will we submit our thoughts about him to him? Followers of Jesus submit to Jesus. And when we do, get ready for a great ride. <laughs> it's kind of funny thinking about this this way. The water slide of God is quite a ride. And you don't end up in a dry, sandy-bottomed pool. You end up, as Ezekiel saw, you end up in water that you walk, start walking out into, first into your ankles, and it keeps going, and then up to your knees, and it keeps going, and up to your waist, and it keeps going, and up to your neck. And you can't even go the depths of the riches of the knowledge of the glory of God that he has for you if you will submit to him. With God, it's a good thing to be out of control because he is in control. And followers of Jesus submit to Jesus.